This is the sidebar for the week of November 17th, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. The Lebanese are, are very fearful that they will become roadkill in the struggle between Saudi Arabia and Iran. This week, we examine the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia with Bruce Rydell. He is a senior fellow and director of the Intelligence Project at the Brookings Institution. He is also the author of Kings and Presidents, Saudi Arabia and the United States since FDR. Bruce Rydell, in order to really better understand some of the recent headlines coming from Saudi Arabia, can you explain how and why the country was first formed? Certainly. Uh, Saudi Arabia is actually older than the United States of America. Uh, The first Saudi kingdom dates back to 1744, and it was a partnership between a then very obscure uh, tribal family in the middle of the Arabian Peninsula, the Al Sauds, and a itinerant preacher, a man named Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. Uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab preached a very strict and fundamentalist version of Islam. We call it Wahhabism today. Uh, Wahhabis don't call themselves Wahhabism. That's a Western import. Uh, They believe in the oneness of God um, and believe that there is only one God and devotion should be given to that person, to that God, and that you shouldn't worry worship any other deity. Uh, This sets them apart, particularly from Shias, who in Muslim culture worship not only Muhammad, uh, but his son-in-law, Ali. Uh, For Wahhabis, that's blasphemy. This marriage between the House of Saud and the House of al-Sheikh, those are the descendants of Muhammad ibn al-Wahhab, is at the very core of Saudi Arabia. In one way to put it is that Saudi Arabia is an absolute monarchy married to a theocracy. The first kingdom of Saudi Arabia expanded all over the Arabian Peninsula. In fact, at its height, it was larger than the current kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, It was destroyed by the Ottoman Turks. A second kingdom emerged in the 19th century. It, too, was destroyed by the Ottoman Turks. And the modern kingdom emerged at the beginning of the 20th century when one of the descendants of the House of Saud, King Abdelaziz al-Saud, better known in the West as Ibn Saud, Uh, retook the capital, uh, Riyadh, which was then just a mud village, and gradually expanded across the Arabian Peninsula. He was greatly benefited in this by the First World War, which distracted the attention of uh, many of uh, his enemies, and he played uh, the Turks against the British um, and was able ultimately to take over what is today all of modern Saudi Arabia. Ibn Saud ruled for 50 years or so, and he is the king that began the special relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. In 1943, Ibn Saud sent two of his sons, uh, then Prince Faisal and Prince Khalid, both of them who would go on to become kings in their own right, uh, to Washington, D.C. at the invitation of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Roosevelt was looking forward to the post-war era, 
and he recognized that oil would be critical in the post-war era, and he recognized that Saudi Arabia would be absolutely critical to the global oil market in the second half of the 20th century. Those two men, Ibn Saud and FDR, went on to meet directly on Valentine's Day, 1945, in the Great Bitter Lake in the Suez Canal in Egypt, and essentially forged the partnership between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the United States of America, which has lasted ever since. And the deal is really very simple. The United States guarantees the security of the kingdom from outside and internal threats. And in return, Saudi Arabia promises to ensure a flow of uh, oil and energy to the rest of the world at relatively stable and moderate prices. All of this, of course, is recounted in your new book, Kings and Presidents, Saudi Arabia and America Since FDR. I want to come back to the book in a moment, but when was oil first discovered in Saudi Arabia, and at what point did the country and its leaders realize the potential? Oil was first discovered in nearby Bahrain early in the 20th century. The first oil flow out of Saudi Arabia didn't come until the late 1920s and early 1930s. Um, Ibn Saud was looking for a foreign oil company. Saudi Arabia didn't have the technical capacity to uh, look for oil or drill for oil uh, on its own at the time. He chose an American company because he realized that the Americans were far away and probably not interested in colonizing Saudi Arabia. He was afraid that if he took a British or a French company, in the end, he would uh, find out that the imperial uh, appetite of either London or Paris would end up making Saudi Arabia a colony of the Western world. Saudi Arabia is one of the few places in the third world that never became a colony, largely because if it wasn't for oil, no one would be interested in most of Saudi Arabia. Uh, most of the country is uh, just desert. The beginning of the oil era in Saudi Arabia coincided with the Great Depression, which meant that the Saudis were broke. Um, they had almost no form of income other than religious tourism, the annual Hajj when Muslims come to Mecca and Medina to fulfill their religious obligations. Um, that tourism dried up in the 1930s. So the arrival of oil came at a critical moment. And by the 1940s and especially the 1950s, uh, Saudi Arabia was rapidly becoming addicted uh, to oil income. And with the 1973 oil embargo, uh, Saudi Arabia saw its income quadruple in a single year. And one of the greatest massive flows of wealth occurred from the West uh, to the Arabian Peninsula in the decade or so that followed the 1973 oil embargo. It's worth remembering that in this special relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, there have been moments of great cooperation. But there's also been moments when we didn't get along. And in 1973, when King Faisal imposed the oil embargo, he did more economic damage to the United States than Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin ever did. How so? Because with the quadrupling of prices, 
the American economy went into recession. We had long lines at the oil gas stations across the country. Unemployment went up. Um, the simple act of uh, the oil embargo, which then forced the price to go up, uh, ended uh, a period of economic growth. It was uh, uh, the um, uh, for the Nixon administration, it was a devastating blow. I said at the beginning of our conversation, trying to better understand Saudi Arabia based on the, the recent headlines. So explain what the crown prince did in Saudi Arabia that led to uh, five princesses being detained, a number of deaths, and some real concern here in the U.S. over what's going to happen next. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman is the favorite son of the king. Uh, he's not the uh, oldest. He's one of the youngest, in fact. Um I think we can characterize him as a man uh, driven by both ambition and anxiety. He's intensely ambitious. Uh, he has pushed himself to the top of the pile in Saudi Arabia in a remarkably fast period, less than three years. Um, he has not only a vision for himself, uh, he has a very ambitious vision for Saudi Arabia called Saudi Vision 2030, which hopes to make the country less reliant, if not completely reliant at all, on oil income uh, later in the 21st century. Remains to be seen whether that's even possible, but it's it's an ambitious goal for the kingdom. Uh, he also wants to change some of the social dynamics of the kingdom. Uh, but he's also a very anxious man because in his rapid climb to power, um, he has made a lot of enemies. Uh, Saudi Arabia has always been a police state. Uh, it's never tolerated dissent. But in the past, Saudi Arabia, for the royal family, obeyed certain rules of the road. Uh, decorum was very important. Honor and integrity. You could get fired from your job say, as a governor of a, of a province, but you got a golden parachute. You were given a new job with a new title. Your honor and dignity were maintained. Mohammed bin Salman has broken all those rules um, by arresting other princesses, princes, arresting members of the establishment, confiscating their wealth. Uh, there are reports of mysterious deaths. Um, he has torn up the rule book, uh, and he knows that, and he knows that he's made a lot of enemies. As long as his father is around, his father provides protection. Um, King Solomon is a uh, son of Ibn Saud, the founder of the modern kingdom. Uh, he was the governor of Riyadh for a half a century. He converted it from a town of less than 200,000 people into a city of almost 8 million people, the most Wahhabi city in the entire world. Um, he worked very closely with the clerical establishment. No one is going to challenge the king. But his son is a different matter, and his son knows it. And I think that he's embarked on a path now where it's a, a, a big bet, a gigantic bet that he's taken, uh, that he can manage all of it. And you have made you may have answered part of this, Bruce Rydell, but but is dissent even possible among Saudi residents? Well, there's no uh, there's no right to freedom of expression. There's no right to uh, 
uh, a free press. Um, there's uh, there's absolutely no right to any kind of religious activity other than uh, Islam. It's forbidden to practice any religion but Islam in the kingdom. That said, within the royal family, and particularly in private, in the past there was a willingness to allow a certain degree of candor. Uh, as long as you didn't challenge the king directly, uh, you could criticize carefully a policy or suggest that, the, that a certain policy was the wrong one or provide an alternative. Uh, one of those arrested, for example, uh, is Prince um, Al-Walid, often known in the West as the Disney Prince. Um, he, for many, many years, has called for giving women the right to vote for um, an anti-corruption campaign. Uh, in that sense, he's an odd person to have been arrested. Um, but it shows that <clears throat> any kind of independence now uh, will be met with a very um, forceful reaction uh, by the crown prince. How often have you been to the region? Uh, I've been to the region dozens of times. Um, I've been from one end of Saudi Arabia to another. I've been all over the Arabian Peninsula. I ask the question because from the first moment you visited Saudi Arabia, and you can tell us when that was, to the most recent, how has the country evolved? How has the capital city changed? Um, when I first visited Saudi Arabia, uh, there was no American embassy in Riyadh. Uh, the embassy was in Jidda. In fact, all foreign embassies were in Jidda. And very few foreign diplomats traveled to Riyadh. It wasn't closed. Uh, Mecca and Medina are closed to uh, non-Muslims. Christians uh, and others cannot visit Mecca and Medina, and that remains the case today. It's been an amazing transformation. Um, this was a society uh, in the 8th or 9th century and it is vaulted into the 21st century uh, in a lifetime. Uh, there are Saudis who can remember um, what life was like in a um, backward uh, Saudi Arabia uh, who now live with all the uh, tools of modernity at their hand. Um, Really, very, very few places in the world have ever been transformed as quickly as Saudi Arabia has been in the last 60, 70 years. And so the follow-up then, based on Saudi's role in the region, who, which country does it worry about the most? Who does it fear the most? Uh, the Saudis uh, are obsessed by Iran and have been for a very, very long time. Why? Um, the... Uh, Iran is a, a Persian, not an Arab country. It's a Shia, not a Sunni country. Uh, it has a long 4,000-year-old uh, history of ambition to be the regional hegemon. It has been the regional hegemon many, of, many centuries over those 4,000 years. Um, the uh, Iranians, I think it's safe to say, look down 
on the uh, uh, Arabs of the Arabian Peninsula uh, as unsophisticated. So there's a long and, and, and deep history of animosity between the two. But it's never been as intense as it is in the Salman era. Uh, previous Saudi kings um, had no love for the Iranians, but they sought accommodation. They sought to found um, a way to uh, minimize differences and to at least have channels of communication. Uh, this king has broken relations with Iran. Uh, he's embarked on a very sectarian foreign policy. Uh, the war in Yemen is, uh, to a certain degree, a sectarian war between uh, the Sunni Saudi-led coalition and the uh, Shias of uh, Yemen, known as Zaidis or Houthis, backed by Iran. Uh, he's pursued a uh, anti-Shia policy in uh, Syria, backing the Sunni rebels against the Assad government. Um, the uh, Saudis intervened in Bahrain in 2011 with their own troops when the Shias demanded political reform. Uh, Shias are a majority on the island, but it's ruled by a Sunni uh, ruling family. And now most recently, he has um, the Saudis have uh, uh, encouraged or coerced, we don't know, uh, the Sunni prime minister of Lebanon, Saeed Hariri, to resign. They've uh, asked all their citizens to leave Lebanon. <clears throat> they seem to be making a run on Lebanese banks. And all of that has to do with Iran's dominant position in Lebanon, and in particular, the dominance of the pro-Iranian Hezbollah group. Um, the Lebanese are, are very fearful that they will become roadkill in the struggle between Saudi Arabia and Iran. My takeaway then, based on all that you've been saying, is a real question mark whether or not these purges, these changes, will work in the long term. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, I think that's, that's a very fair assessment. The, the kingdom which has been predictable and stable for a half a century has now become very unpredictable and potentially unstable as well. Based on the research from your latest book, again, the title is Kings and Presidents, Saudi Arabia and America Since FDR, what did you learn and what advice would you give U.S. officials in dealing with Saudi Arabia in the future? This relationship has been a truffled one from the beginning. It's had great highs and great lows. Uh, it's had what I describe in the book as near-death experiences. I think the lesson to be drawn from that is that we have to recognize that while it's an important and significant relationship, it's not based on shared values. It's based on shared interests. And therefore, we have to be careful not to let our shared interests overwhelm our values. We need to be candid with the Saudis. That doesn't mean we have to have public uh, displays of, of differences. But in private, American presidents need to caution the Saudis against pursuing policies that could destabilize the region and ultimately destabilize the kingdom as well. 
And we also have to be prepared to speak out against uh, repression of dissent. Again, most successfully done in private um, rather than in public. But candor in the relationship is vital. The example I use in the book is John F. Kennedy. Uh, John F. Kennedy in the early 1960s uh, was dealing with a Saudi Arabia which was broke, which had a king, King Saud, who was a failure, uh, and uh, a war in Yemen next door, um, which was becoming a growing threat to regional stability. In some ways, remarkable analogies to today. President Kennedy invited the then Crown Prince, Prince Faisal, to the White House and after the formal meetings, he took him upstairs to the family quarters. And in a very small meeting, he laid out his concern about the prospects for the survival of the kingdom. Faisal listened attentively and at the end of the meeting said, I agree with you, Mr. President. We need to reform. And he went home uh, to Saudi Arabia and he embarked upon a series of reforms. He also removed his failed brother, as king, it wasn't easy to do, but he did it. Um, and he set the stage really for the um, fantastic growth in the Saudi economy that we saw in the years since. <clears throat> Kennedy's example is a good one for American presidents to look at. Being candid with the Saudis, giving them uh, our best advice uh, in private in a non-threatening atmosphere uh, is the way for America to pursue its relationship with Saudi Arabia. A little more behind the scenes uh, and a little less Twitter. Bruce Rydell, who is a senior fellow and director of the Brookings Intelligence Project, the author of a number of books, including his latest, Kings and Presidents, Saudi Arabia and America Since FDR. We thank you for your perspective. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.